Acts 27 and uh, verses 9 through 16. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurycladon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive, and running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. Amen. Father, we pray that you would anoint the preaching of your word, that you would uh, take uh, human clay lips, and uh, that you would cause through this clay vessel the glories of your grace, of your provision, of your law to shine through, that we would be sanctified by your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe may be seated. My family will tell you that I'm not much of a game person. I'll play it just to keep company with uh, the kids. And I'm definitely not a computer game person. But there was one game uh, back in the 90s that I played a few times. It was a Microsoft um, Flight Simulator, I think is what it was called. And uh, it, it was a little bit a little bit fun. I crashed it a few times at the beginning, but uh, you could deliberately crash it into buildings. That's not what I did all the time, but uh, <laughs> uh, we would fly over different landscapes, different cities. You could ditch it in the sea, and the cool thing about it was, at the end of the game, no big deal. It resets, and you start all over again. Now, wouldn't it be neat if life was that way? You could just reset all of the mistakes that you made. Some people treat grace that way, but unfortunately, it's not a realistic view of uh, God's grace, I've had a number of times, if I could reset my life, that I would say, oh, wow, I would really like to reset that. I've lost some ships in the storm, just like uh, was lost in this storm later on in this chapter, and it's too late. I can't really get those back. And uh, people, a lot of times, when they experience this, they just live constantly with regrets instead of regrouping and moving on. They've lost money and friends and opportunities and jobs. Sometimes their stupidity has caused them even to lose the lives of other people. And rather than confessing and moving on, they just are constantly burdened and weighed down with stewing over their regrets. Now, in the case of Paul here, he has to live with a stupid mistake that other people have made. He didn't have any choice about, uh, about this. And all of us, I think, whether it's your own fault or somebody else's fault, are going to have to face some storms of life, the repercussions of bad decisions, especially if you're living in America right now. There are some unbelievably stupid mistakes and decisions that are being made in Washington, D.C., and we're going to be suffering under the consequences of that. You can't just say, okay, forgiveness, reset the game. No, you suffer under the consequences of those bad decisions. 
And uh, we're going to look, first of all, at the ten most common reasons that just jumped out at me from this text, but the most common reasons for bad decisions. And then we're going to go on and we're going to look at how do we glorify God when your life has just fallen apart and everything is messed up. One of the most common reasons for bad decisions is that we feel the pressure of time. You know, we just got to make some kind of a decision, some kind of a move. Verse 9 says, Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous. Now we'll look at the dangerous part under point B, but I want to look at the time pressures that they were under. Uh, So far, uh, sailing was already in the dangerous season, Uh, and if they waited much more, they would be entering into what was considered the suicidal time of life. And so time was running out in order to be able to find a a really good harbor. One expert who has calculated each step along the, the way of this journey estimated that they've already been at least five days in this port, and time is a wasting. Some of the stupidest mistakes I've made in my lifetime have been because people were pressuring me, pressuring me, and it wasn't much time to be evaluating. You make a decision. How many times do people make a stupid decision buying something because the salesman says, you know, this is the last day of the sale. You've got to make your decision. Or this is the last item we have in stock, and there's going to be a big line of people going to snatch this up. You've got to get this. How many times do we get into debt you know, because we feel the pressure of time to get into something. Impatience has lost many a battle down through history. And King Saul lost his kingship, at least God's blessing upon his kingship, as a result of failing precisely this test. God had told him to wait until Samuel showed up, and Samuel was taking his time. He didn't show up until the last minute, and Saul just felt, we've got to make some kind of a decision, especially with the dangers that lie ahead. And we like to excuse ourselves and say, well, it's not my fault. I just didn't have time to make this decision. But it's a lousy excuse because there are many people who are constantly making good decisions all the time and they're doing it under incredible time constraints. You can think of firemen. You're always having to make decisions under, under pressure situations, military commanders, nurses, pilots. And many of these guys consistently make good decisions even though there's time pressure. So what makes those professionals making consistently good decisions and others making consistently bad decisions under the same time pressures? Uh, Some people have said, well, it's, it's an issue of intuition. These guys have good intuition and the others do not. I don't think it's entirely intuition. The reason they say it's intuition is they say there's so many factors that it's impossible to go through that it's got to be intuition. I mean, you can't go through all of the pros and cons, the goals and the obstacles to the goals, and, you know, the risk-reward ratio and all of the things you map out when you do detailed long-term planning. It's just impossible to do that on the fly. So they say it's, it's intuition. Well, um, uh, the kind of instant perception Paul had here may look a little bit like intuition, but it's based upon a whole network of past experiences, worldview issues, And even detailed planning in the past has been done in other kinds of situations. And as those begin to gel in our minds, it enables us to make snap decisions. These are the kind of leadership things that we are are training our children in. And all of those things, as they mature, begin to gel and make people uh, able to make these these kinds of uh, quick decisions. Now, field commanders used to be taught, you can tell me if uh, they're still taught, but MDMP, Military Decision-Making Process, 
And the, the, the whole uh, background to that is that you want to go through every possible scenario and try to make the best decision based on the available information. So you've got boatloads of information coming into the situation. Well, there was a guy by the name of Gary A. Klein uh, who did a bunch of research and decided, well, how do the actual experts really do it on the, on the field? Do they really follow this? And he observed firefighters in emergency situations and military commanders out there on the field when they're under pressure, and he discovered they don't do anything remotely like MDMP. They do what he called recognition planning module model. And instead of amassing a whole bunch of information, what they do on the fly is they look at one plausible um, uh, way of taking action, and they play that out quickly in their mind to see if it's likely to succeed. And when it's likely, they think it's likely to see it succeed, they take it and they make adjustments on the fly on the field. Now, here's the point. Their good decisions have a boatload of experience behind them. And I think that's basically what's going on here with Paul. Paul is not giving a prophecy in verse 10. He is giving a perception. This was his recognition planning mod model. He said, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Now, as it turns out, not a single life was lost. But this was the most realistic assessment of, uh, of that particular uh, uh, tactic that they were, they, they were looking at. And again, don't think of this as false prophecy. There are people like Wayne Grudem say, okay, here's another example where prophecy is not like in the Old Testament. They make mistakes. It didn't say he prophesied. He had a perception here, and it was an instant perception of a suggested course of action. And, and by the way, it was a very accurate perception that only needed some slight adjustments like people do on the field, and God gave him those adjustments. Now, back to these time pressure situations we find ourselves in, here's the point. If you can enable your children to mature in life values and uh, uh, to mature in the life leadership issues that we've been encouraging you to, to, to train them in, they're going to automatically be in a place to be much more likely to make a good decision. For example, if you've already developed a budget, and you're disciplined in keeping to that budget, you're not going to succumb to this salesman. You've got to decide right now. No, you're going to look at the budget and see if any evaluations need to be made. If you've already developed uh, within your children contentment, deferred gratification, long-term planning, uh, it's going to be much uh, less likely that they're going to get themselves into debt on foolish comfort issues right now. So you don't need to make foolish mistakes simply because of the pressure of time. Now, a second common reason for bad decisions is we aren't prudent in handling risks. Verse 9 said, and sailing was now dangerous. Now, the Roman sailors had a rule of thumb that uh, any time after September 15 is very risky to be sailing. And any time after November 11 was absolutely suicidal. Nobody would even be caught out in the Mediterranean after November 11. Now, according to verse 9, the fast day, the Day of Atonement, has already passed, and in 59 A.D., the Day of Atonement fell on October 5. So they're already at least three days into this dangerous season. And so uh, they know that they're not going to be making it to Italy. They're not even trying to do that. What they're trying to do is they're trying to get to a little bit better port 
that's uh, about 30, 35 miles to the west. It was called Phoenix. And nowadays, uh, it's, it almost sounds like Phoenix. I forget what the, the exact pronunciation is. But that was a much more commodious port. So what they're doing is they're thinking risk-reward. We've got a nice wind going here. It's only 35 miles, and we'll have a much more comfortable port to live in. And so they're weighing out risk-reward factors. And every one of us does that. In fact, we must do it. It's very appropriate to be weighing risks and even embracing risks sometimes. Um, every one of you uh, knows that there's a risk when you drive your car. You could end up getting killed. There's a risk when you take the roller coaster, you could puke afterwards. Okay? <laughs> there's always risks, but the, the risk is minimal compared to the enormity of the reward that is before you. Okay? But here's the point. The higher the risk comes, the more it goes from wisdom into foolishness. And here's what made this risk absolutely unacceptable to Paul. First of all, the difference in reward was very small. Okay? They could weather the next three months quite well at Fairhavens. So it's not as if they're going from one risky port to another uh, non-risky port. It's the degree of comfort that they will have. And then secondly, the amount of risk that they were taking by traveling at this time of year was huge, way disproportionate to the amount of comfort that they would be gaining. Let me give you four reasons why this short trip was a huge risk. First, any sailing after September 15 was a risk. It's already October 5. And actually, one chronologist who's worked through this said it's likely October 10. But the earliest it could be would be October 5. So they're really pushing their chances. Second, the soft south wind that was blowing is an anomaly for this time of year. There's nothing historical to say that this is going to take them all the way to their next harbor. Third, the direction they were taking was the wrong direction for the normal prevailing winds of that time. And then fourth, if they got caught in a strong wind, once they get out of port, there are so many islands and treacherous reefs through that area, it would be extremely dangerous to be, to be running in windy, uh, in windy conditions. So all around, it was a, uh, not an acceptable risk. And this debate, I think, continues today. Uh, people are taking huge risks about the future so that they can put a comfort on their credit card today. Uh, there are all kinds of people telling our current government that they're taking enormous risks concerning the global economy when they continue to engage in the irresponsible behavior of bailouts and government running businesses, inflationary tactics, more government regulations. Uh, that are going out there. Now, unfortunately, what's happened is that these owners and helmsmen that are in Washington, D.C., they disagree and they say, oh, no, don't worry about it. There's a soft wind blowing and it'll take you all the way into port. But I'm convinced we're going to be heading into a disastrous storm and people are not being prudent in the way in which they handle these risks. Third reason that people make bad decisions is that they don't want to hear uncomfortable news or advice. Now, this is, this is just an amazing aspect of our sinful human nature. We would rather risk the possibility of a storm in the future than we would to hear news that's uncomfortable right now. Just, just think about a doctor. A doctor tells a person, you better quit smoking, you're going to die. 
And more times than not, the person doesn't care, you know, if he's going to die or not. Or you better lose weight. Your diabetes is going to result in all kinds of problems. Or you better start moving your joints. I know it's painful to move your joints, but you're going to lose all mobility if you don't move your joints. Well, they don't want to hear something uh, that is uncomfortable uh, to their their body. And uh, uh, I'll just tell a story I heard recently. One dad came home. It was a hard day, and he was in a sinfully sour mood. And he told his wife, he could see the look in her eyes, as, look, I've had a bad day. Please don't tell me about bad news if there is any bad news. She said, okay, no bad news. Now for the good news. You know the four children you have? Well, three of them didn't break their arm. (laughs) Why is it we don't like to hear bad news when it really is for our good? Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. Perhaps you've been ignoring the warnings to prepare for disaster, and you think, I'm not going to buy groceries and load up on gold and ammo and stuff like that. There, there's no problems that are out there. Perhaps you've been ignoring the warnings about debt simply because you don't like bad news. Now, some of the people just don't want to believe what Paul is saying to them in verse 10. Paul advised them, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. See, Paul had already experienced three shipwrecks, and in one of those, he was swimming for a whole night and a whole day before he got rescued. That's in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25. He's learned the hard way. He he wants the hard truth rather than going through that again, and yet many people don't act like that. Cain was the first one who got bad news from from God. God says, look, Cain, you better get your attitudes adjusted or you're going to be in deep trouble. This is paraphrasing. He said, sin is crouching at the door, wanting to have mastery over you. You must have mastery over it. Cain didn't want to hear about that bad news. And as a result, this bitterness festered into such anger, he ended up killing his brother and a perfect storm came upon him as he went into exile. Every sin we engage in really is ignoring the bad news that bad consequences will come uh, from that sin into our lives. Every sin is that way. Homosexuals engage in extremely risky behavior, but they don't want to be told. They don't want to hear about the disastrous consequences. I think of 1 Kings 22 where the king of uh, Israel tells Micaiah, How many times shall I make you swear that you will tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? But when Micaiah tells him the truth, he gets really ticked off and he puts him in prison, right? We need to get to a place where we say, you know, love rejoices in the truth. Lord, I want to rejoice in the truth no matter how hard that truth may be. I want to rejoice in the truth. Fourth reason why many people make bad decisions is that they listen to the wrong experts. Now, in this case, it made a little bit of sense to be listening to the owner and the helmsman of the... Alexandrian ship, who would you believe? A frequent traveler like Paul or experts like the the helmsman and uh, the owner of the ship? And actually, commentators don't know if this is one person or two people, uh, the way that the grammar goes. But you would say, no, we've got to listen to this expert. He's been sailing a lot more than Paul has. Verse 11, nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. Now, Luke appears to be surprised by this, and here's what F.F. Bruth says in his commentary. The narrator 
seems to find the centurion's preference surprising, not to say reprehensible. Now, this has puzzled uh, some liberals. They've said, you know, this, that's ridiculous to even be surprised like that. Who are you going to believe, a landlubber or an expert salesperson? I mean, it's obvious, but conservatives have responded and they say, look, even experts can have their judgment skewed by their desires and or by their economic interests. No one is 100% objective. No one. Consider the evidence. Captain James Smith, who's gone, he was the guy that went through this trip and he's researched everybody else that's gone through this trip. Fabulous book that he wrote. He said, Fair Havens is so well protected by islands that though not equal to Lutro, it must be a very fair winter harbor and that considering the suddenness, the frequency, and the violence with which gales of northerly winds spring up, and the certainty that if such a gale sprang up in the passage from Fair Havens to Lutro, the ship must be driven off to sea, the prudence of the advice given by St. Paul may probably be supported even on nautical grounds. So we're not talking about a naive opinion versus a well-grounded opinion. Paul's opinion was much better grounded than this captain's was much better grounded it's not going to get them any closer to italy the only reason that the captain could give as to why they should go there is that the port over there in phoenix and it's not lutro this guy there's two that were close but it's really phoenix that uh that port is going to be much more comfortable so it's comfort and convenience and only comfort and convenience that motivated them. Now, if the centurion had asked a few questions, he would have discovered very quickly that the, the comparison of the amount of comfort that you're going to gain versus the enormity of the risk that you're going to gain is just not worth it. But it appears he did not uh, do much investigation. Now, let me tell you a story that shows how theology, worldview, and mature thinking can save a life. A few years ago, I got a, a call from a very close friend of mine. He was in the hospital in Lincoln. And he called me up and he said, Hey, Phil, uh, I'm over at the hospital. And uh, he named the hospital over there. And he said, uh, My cousin got into a severe car accident. She's been admitted to the hospital here. And I've been listed as the nearest of kin to make medical directives for her. And uh, they want to harvest her organs, and I just don't know a whole lot about this. Are there any questions that I should be asking? I just don't feel quite right about this. And so I asked him, well, what's the criteria of death that, uh, that they have given? Because he said that they said she was dead. He said, well, they said she's brain dead, whatever that means. And I told him, well, and I explained what brain death criteria was. I said, that is not a biblically valid, a theologically valid criteria of death. And I've known many people who have been declared brain dead and have completely recovered from their supposed brain deadness. And I said, I would never give authorization for, for doing that. And we talked back and forth about some of the theological ambiguities and the issues that were involved on that. Anyway, he came to a place where he said, okay, I, I need to make the tough decision. And he said, no. And he said, no, until there is the traditional cardio uh, pulmonary definition of death. See, the life is not in the brain. The life is in the blood and there's the breath of life. So the traditional cardiopulmonary definition of death is the only valid biblical definition of death. So that's what he told him. Boy, were they ticked off. 
And uh, they tried to convince him otherwise. And one of the complaints was, your pastor is no expert. You're no expert. You need to listen to the experts. Well, based on theology and worldview, he said, no, until a proper criteria of death is accomplished, we're not going to authorize that. And so he stood by his guns. Well, here's the cool part of the story. Within two weeks of that decision, his cousin was up walking around perfectly helpful, healthy. And boy, was she freaked out when she discovered that they were trying to pressure him to allow them to harvest her organs. Now, here's the moral of the story. Don't blindly believe the experts. Listen to experts, yes. You've got to take seriously all of the advice. They've got far more expertise than you do. So yes, get all the information you can. But you've got to think for yourself. Don't blindly follow the experts. Think for yourself, hopefully, within a biblical worldview. And the Bible, by the way, does help you to sort through all kinds of practical issues like that and like your financial decisions and decisions for your children. Now, here's another slant on this. Sometimes people will only listen to the experts who will tell them what they want to hear. And I think this is exactly what's been happening with the political left in America on this issue of global warming. They are just railroading stuff through, despite the fact that thousands of scientists even gone on the web and they've stuck their neck out and they said, look, all of the evidence shows that this is a hoax. There is nothing to this global warming nonsense. And despite the fact that economists have said, uh, this is going to bring devastation to the economy, despite the fact that it's been getting colder <laughs> every year for several years. They just bullrose through. And you know what? They've got their experts that they want to listen to. They will listen to those uh, who back up their, their views. In the case of the king of Israel in 1 Kings 22, he rejects Micaiah's message. He doesn't like that. It doesn't fit into what he wants to do. But he's got 400 yes-men prophets who are used to telling the king exactly what the king wants to hear. And again, I am convinced our nation is heading toward a hurricane-scale problem in politics and in economics. And if we want to weather the storm, we better pay, start paying attention. Now, there are going to be experts out there just like those 400 prophets uh, that will tell you, oh, don't worry about it. Soft wind is blowing. It'll get you into port. Don't worry about it. But if you know very much about the Bible, you realize our nation is in deep trouble. We cannot escape judgment apart from repentance. Fifth reason why people make dumb mistakes is because they don't like inconveniences. Verse 12 says, And because the harbor was not suitable to harbor in. That was actually all of the research has been done. It's a, it's a fine harbor as far as protecting from the wind and the waves. It's got so many islands out there. It completely protects uh, from the wind. But that word in the Greek for not suitable can be translated as inconvenient. Now, there's two reasons why this would be, you know, pretty inconvenient. First, in this port, everybody would have to stay on board the ship. Now, it's doable. People have done that and they planning to live in there for quite a while. It's doable, but not as convenient as living on land. Second, it would be a bit more wavy and a bit more cold, and so not as comfortable. And it is comfort and convenience that drives the decisions of so many people. Many of the decisions of our present administration really could be summed up as, you know, that's not going to be too convenient. The too-big-to-fail policy, I mean, they'll let a lot of businesses crumble and fall, but these big corporations, too-big-to-fail means it would be rather inconvenient to have so many people lose their jobs all at the same time. 
Little do they realize the economic storm that will result from bailing out so many uh, companies. But you know what? We as Christians do exactly the same thing. All kinds of pressures of discomfort and inconvenience are factoring into why Christians make the decisions that they do about the education of their children. Ah, that would be just too hard. That would be too costly. That's just inconvenient. Or about daycare, or taking on two jobs, or taking on more debt. Let me tell you a story about how taking the convenient way out is not always the best way. The lady's name was Ruth Gruber, and back in the 1940s, she worked for the Department of the Interior and uh, was working to try to get homesteaders to go up to Alaska. And she was quite the outdoors woman. She'd uh, drive these dog sleds all over the place, but she also rode by truck and by plane. Well, in 1942, she was about to board a small plane to Nome when she was handed a message from the Secretary of the Interior, and they said, this is an emergency. You need to read this right away. Well, the plane's about ready to leave, so she runs over to the, uh, the, the, the place over there. She's got the message, but it's back in those days, it had to be decoded. And the operator there, he's just taking so long a time. She is just really nervous. She does not want to miss this plane. And sure enough, the pilot, irritated with the delay, he just takes off. And she is so stressed about all of the inconvenience of the lost time that's going to happen and the pressures that's going to put upon her. She's on, almost in tears over it. But her whole perspective changed when 10 minutes, something must have gone wrong with the plane because it decided it needed to come back and land and it ended up crashing and everybody on board dying. She said that 10 minutes completely changed her perspective for the rest of her life on what inconveniences are about. Now, if 10 minutes can change your perspective, what about eternity? Most of the inconveniences and the lack of comforts that drive our decisions and our purchases and all of those things, they're inconsequential in light of eternity. And I think we could stop making bad decisions if we just relax a little bit in light of eternity. Now, a sixth reason we make bad decisions is that we listen to the voice of the majority. Verse 12 says, The majority advised to set sail from there also. I think Bible believers need to quit thinking that the majority is right. Uh, the Bible, uh, what is it called? The moral majority, you know, they were playing on this, this whole American idea that the majority is right. But most of the time in world history, the majority has been wrong. What does the majority do? They usually come on the, on the side of whoever's winning. And that's really the case here. Uh, who, who's the guy who's most likely to win? Surely not a prisoner, you know. And so they come on the side of whoever is going to win. This centurion appeared to be unsure of what to do, but when the experts and the majority are advocating doing this dangerous stunt, and it was a dangerous stunt, all that you read on this subject, this was a dangerous stunt, yeah, he decided to go along. And how many times do kids do a stupid thing because of the peer pressure of a majority of their mates, their classmates. It happens all the time. And until we get a backbone, until we get a God-given courage to say, I don't care what the majority says, I'm doing what the Bible calls me to do, we're going to keep making bad decisions. This centurion, according to Roman law, had the final decision. It was hard for him to go against the majority. Here's my question. What about you? What about you? A seventh reason we make bad decisions is the constant push to find something nicer. Verse 12, 
if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. Now, prior to an earthquake and a seismic upheaval that really tilted the land there, uh, uh, archaeology and the beaches, everything, the way they're set up, it shows that there were inlets, contrary to what the liberals say, there were inlets going exactly the directions that, uh, that Paul was talking about here, which made this the best port for wintering. But that's what we want, isn't it? We always want the best. We want the best of everything, even if it means we're going to overextend ourselves. Benjamin Franklin said, Contentment makes poor men rich. Discontentment makes rich men poor. That is so true. So true. It was a little bit of discontentment that made this ship owner not only lose his cargo, he lost his ship over this. The eighth reason for bad decisions is that Christians have a tendency to read far too much into open doors. You know, the Lord's given me an open door. Or providential confirmation. You know, when everything's lining up with our pet desires, we think, ah, God's guidance is in this. And if you were back then, you might have thought, oh yeah, this maybe is uh, God's opening the way for us to get to a better harbor. Um, Look at verse 13. When the south wind blew softly... Supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. When the soft wind, south wind, blew softly. How inviting that was. And yet it ended up being an absolute disaster. Now, I'm not saying that God cannot guide us through open doors. All I'm saying is that some open doors lead to elevator shafts. And if you step through that black hole, it's going to be a disaster. Okay? Jonah could have argued that God was confirming His decision to go a different direction. After all, the ship's just happening to be ready to sail just when He gets there. You know, it's the right timing. The ship's going the right direction. And uh, uh, the wind is right. He even has the right amount of money in his pocket. Surely God is directing us. Well, God's already told him not to, so that wouldn't be the case. But a lot of people think, surely people would not do that. They do it all the time. They do it in far more stupid ways than even Jonah did. Uh, I argued for two hours with a pastor who had convinced himself that God was leading him to divorce his wife and to marry somebody in his congregation. And I told him dogmatically, I said, God has not guided you. Here has where God has guided you. It clearly says right here that your circumstances do not allow for a divorce. Well, I, I just could not convince him of that because his mind was made up and he had used this rationalization. Look at all the confirmations that God has given. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Open doors providential enablings many times have led people to disaster. You cannot base everything on that. This is your only infallible source of guidance. And uh, open doors and providential enablings, yeah, that can be a confirmation, but that's all it is, just confirmation. Okay, ninth, we're blinded by our desires. Verse 13 again, supposing that they had obtained their desire... Now, here's the interesting thing about this. This was not a sinful desire. It was not sinful. It was not even a huge desire. It was just that it was an inappropriate desire for that particular time. Sometimes we make bad decisions 
because our good desires are not the best desires. And I think of, of, of situations in my life where I am so intent, my mind is very goal-oriented, I'm so intent on doing a church project that I'm missing an opportunity to connect with the hearts of my children. And you know, the stronger the desire to do that good goal, I mean, it's a good goal to serve the Lord in the church, right? Great goal. But the stronger the desire, the more I can be blinded to the ways God wants me to redeem this particular moment. Let me read you a short story by Gary Williams taken from his site, Seniors Quiet Time Miscellany, and see if you can see yourself in this father. One day a nine-year-old boy and a man began to walk on the beach, or walk to the beach. The man's body was on vacation many miles away from home and business, but his heart was still business-blinded. He thought his duty was to make sure that he and the boy got to the beach efficiently. This man wanted to hurry. The nine-year-old had a less pressing agenda. He found a small rock and began kicking it down the road. It took effort to keep the stone ahead of him. The boy saw no reason why the rock could not keep them company on the way. Come on now, the man scolded. I don't want to wait for you to kick that rock. Resignedly, the boy kicked it to the side of the road and began walking silently beside his father. Suddenly, the father stopped. We cannot say why. Perhaps he just then realized that the beach was not a board meeting or that sunshine is enjoyed best without a sundial. Maybe the eyes of his heart caught something in the face of the boy. Or perhaps just then his own boyishness flashed to the surface. We know only that he turned to the boy and said, How about it if I help you and we kick it together? Okay, said the boy, and he quickly retrieved the rock. Soon four feet were scuffling in the dust of the road, and the man was trying to show the boy his idea of a good kick. And somewhere in the magic of their slow and halting progress, the man and the boy... became father and son. They discussed the best way to kick such a small rock and experimented freely as they passed it back and forth between them. They shouted unabashed praise and admiration at each other's well-placed kicks and laughed at the other ones. And the father discovered anew that morning what the boy had known all along. Kicking rocks can be fun. Fun is not complicated. It need not be expensive. All you need is a road and a rock. Companionship is not complicated. It need not be expensive. All that is needed is something to share and someone to share it with. The father did not solve any major problems that day, and the world may never know about his walk to the beach. But for a moment, there were two less troubled hearts in the world because a father kicked at a rock with his son. Perhaps some of that good continues yet. This world... needs more boyish fathers and fewer businessmen. It needs fathers willing to kick rocks with their children and children willing to teach them how. <laughs> and, you know, I think there are storms of loneliness and regrets and missed opportunities and the lost hearts of our kids because we've been blinded by good desires. Good desires, not bad desires. We've been blinded by good desires. And what we need to evaluate is, is my good desire the best one for this particular moment? Now, one last thing that I see as having led to the disaster in this chapter is that we think we're going to be careful. The last phrase in verse 13 says, they sailed close by Crete. They were hugging the coastline, okay? They didn't want to be too risky, get too far away from the, the shore. Surely, if we're careful, we'll get there safely. 
I remember one of the first places that my parents came back to on one of their furloughs from Ethiopia. And I don't even remember who the the person's name was, but uh, we went to the west coast of Vancouver Island and there was a house right on the beach. And we thought, this is just cool because we hadn't seen the beach. And uh, while my parents were fellowshipping with the adults, uh, my brothers John and Stan and I, we went down to the beach. We saw a rowboat there. Wow, was that enticing. And uh, we thought, you know, we'll be careful. We're not going to go out very far. We started rowing out, and unknown to us, there was a strong current that was taking us out to sea. We quickly recognized, and we're getting freaked out with how fast we were going, and we rowed like crazy trying to get back to the shore, and we were moving out faster than we could row back. Now, my oldest brother had the presence of mind to recognize we've got to go at an angle with this current if we're even going to make it to the point. Otherwise, we'd have been swept completely out to sea. So John and Stan, who were the strongest, they just rode like crazy, uh, aiming at a, at a diagonal. And just about the time we're going to pass that promontory on the end, and it would have been the end of it, they could see the shore. They jumped out about up to their waist, and they were able to drag the boat in, and we dragged it all the way back. And we, whew, Boy, that was a close call. But we learned that day <laughs> that doing the wrong thing with care will still get you in trouble. Right? I have a friend who has herpes from a one-night stand. And he was so surprised. He was being so careful. I know a former pastor who lost his pastorate and eventually lost his life because during a time of deep depression, he just craved for something that would calm his nerves. Somebody told him to try crack, crack cocaine. This was a good pastor too. He tried it. He, said, he remembered thinking, I'm just going to be careful. I'm just going to try it one time. And he got, he got addicted. He could not get off of that. And um, he landed in a perfect storm that turned his whole world upside down and eventually led to his death. Now, all of these things we have gone through, these are so common. I think you can think of tons of illustrations I have not given for why we make these kinds of bad decisions. And some of you are suffering right now because you've made the stupid decisions in the past. Now, the worst thing you could do right now is to beat up on yourself. All that's going to do is to add to the storm. Yeah, repent of your stupid decisions and learn from your stupid mistakes, but don't beat up on yourself. You've got to now start doing something about it. And so what I want to do under Roman numeral 3, we're going to look at the three reactions that storms bring into our lives surprise now if you've really been studying god's word and being like the sons of issachar who understand the times know what is there a lot to do you're not going to be surprised but usually we end up being surprised sometimes fear and then helplessness and what i want to do is try to encourage you to glorify god during those three responses verse 14 shows the shock and surprise that hit this party but not long after a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurocladon. Now, we don't know if not long after, it was just a few minutes later, half an hour, an hour. It couldn't have been very long because the trip itself was not going to be a real long trip. But at some point, they are totally surprised by this incredible wind that comes back and the wind, the direction it's going, makes it impossible to get back to their fair havens. So when you all of a sudden discover Oh, man, my life is unraveling and I am going to be in deep trouble. How do we respond quickly? First of all, don't blame shift. Very easy to say it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. That flows from pride. 
And what does the Bible say about pride? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You already got the storm against you. You don't want to have God against you too, okay? So don't listen to pride by blame shifting. Don't listen to pride by playing ignorant. Tell your family, you made a stupid mistake and here is some of the reaction, here is some of the remedies, the corrective actions that we're going to take. Tell others about it. Third, pray for deliverance. Fourth, don't let pressure make you bail out on your friends. Oh, I've seen this happen so many times. People get pressured and anxious and they start lashing out at their friends, their husbands, their wives. Now, these are the people you're going to need to have on the boat to be pulling together. In fact, as we face some of these uh, future terrible storms, we need to follow Paul. Paul did not sulk in a corner because they didn't listen to him. And he didn't say, well, I told you so. He dove in with all of the rest. He knew what needed to happen. Fifth, convince yourself that God is with you even in the storm. Six, convince yourself that God controls even the storm. He's using it for His purposes. Seventh, don't be surprised or let the surprise that the laws of harvest, wow, they actually work, make you despair. Instead, make it let you have hope. God's laws of harvest actually work. I'm going to start sowing seeds of righteousness. Okay, so that was the surprise. A second thing that would have overwhelmed these men in that storm was fear. A New American standard, uh, New American commentary says this. Luke described it as being typhonic in force, typhonikos, a word that in Greek as well as in its English cognate refers to a whirling cyclonic wind formed by the clash of opposing air masses, hurricane force. Verse 14, more specifically, he designated the storm as the deadly winter storm of the Mediterranean known by sailors as the Gregali. Now, my point in reading that is that this would have been terrifying. I mean, to be in a hurricane in a 180-foot boat, I mean, this would have been terrifying. Everything soon was going to be completely out of their control. Their world was being turned upside down. And fear can hit you when you have enormous economic loss. You lose your house. You lose your family. You lose other things. Fear can grip you. And here's three things from Philippians 4 you can do when fear hits you. First, Paul calls us to pray rightly. You know the way some people pray makes things worse? They're so problem-focused that the fears just keep increasing the more they think about this problem. And the helplessness just increases. God does not honor prayers that are filled with despair, that grumble, and that lack faith. Instead, Paul said, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, he isn't saying you can't offer up your prayer requests. Of course you can. But he's saying do it in a God-centered way. He said, first of all, you need to do it with thanksgiving. When you thank God for the perfect storm that you are going through, you begin to realize, you know, God's greater than this storm. When you begin to intercede for other people on the boat, thinking about their interests more than your own, pretty soon you find that your shift away from your troubles to their troubles begins to calm your fears. Second, meditate rightly. It's going to be all kinds of horrible thoughts that flood through your mind during that perfect storm. You're going to say, what if I lose my kids? What if, what if, what if? And, and Paul says in that passage, if you want this perfect peace to guard your hearts, Cut it out when it comes to thinking negatively. He tells you the kind of thoughts you need to have. 
Third, act rightly. Do not cower in a corner. Rouse your spirits to keep the ship afloat and to help each other in the boat. Paul says, The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Well, on this boat, Paul modeled exactly that action. Luke did too. Look at verse 16. We secured the skiff with difficulty. Notice the we. They're they're working together. It's not just the crew out there. They realize they all have to be involved. Verse 19, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. And all through the storm, they modeled how to overcome their fears through taking appropriate action. And that leads us to verse 15 and following, handling our feelings of helplessness. Have you ever felt helpless? It doesn't feel like there's a thing you can do. Verse 15, so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Now the words caught and let her drive show that they were feeling pretty helpless here. It was really, in in one sense, out of their control. So what do you do when you feel helpless? Well, you can stop going the wrong direction. Verse 15 says that they let her drive, which means they turned her around. They went. It would have been dangerous to keep going this direction. They turned her around. And some people absolutely refuse to do this. Their actions are the actions that have led them into trouble, but they keep going forward. They keep perpetuating the same stupid actions. And it's not just drug addicts that do this. People who are buying things irresponsibly, they don't, you know, they don't bail on the things that are dragging them down. They don't throw the tackle overboard that's dragging them down. Instead, they continue their irresponsible lifestyle hoping that a miracle will come along. Well, forget about miracles if that storm in your life is God's discipline in your life. (laughs) Forget about miracles. I I think of one family whose bills just kept ratcheting up and up, 10,000, 20, 40, 80,000 on their credit cards, and they never took any corrective action. They kept on with their irresponsible lifestyle. They were passive. So first thing you can do, you can turn around. Second thing we can do is to look for opportunities to help you ride out the storm. Look at verse 16. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. There was just a few minutes of time on the shelter, lee side of that island, and they're still drifting, but there's just a few minutes of time before they get into the Sirtis sands. They do everything they can. They secure the skiff. They put these cables around, uh, around their, their, their ship to try to keep the waves from pounding the boards apart. Now, the point is, do what you can. You may not be able to do very much, but do what you can. And too many times, this is what happens when the storms hit. Families just freeze. They, they get paralyzed. They don't know what to do. And so they don't do anything. Well, that's going to guarantee that you will sink. These men did everything they could to keep the ship steered in a direction where they're not going to capsize, doing the best that they can, and uh, holding the boat together. And this is what I counsel people who have economic disaster that has hit them. I said, you're not going to be able to get out of this right away, but you can at least honor God with some tiny steps that are following God's Word. Just take these as actions of faith. In fact, Kevin DeGroote, 
He's got a, a book that gives testimony after testimony of people in financial disaster who have taken steps that, from a human perspective, that's not going to do any good. Why even bother? But they said, no, the Bible calls us to take these corrective steps, and they do it. And they have watched God open up the winds, windows of heaven in blessing them far above what they could ask or think. Now, what I want to do is I want to quickly summarize with ten things you can do to help you either avoid or ride out the storms of life. First one's obvious. Make yourself storm resistance by putting off the reasons for bad decisions we've already looked at in, in, in point number one. Now, nobody's going to be stormproof. We're all going to go through storms. But you can make yourself more storm resistant, at least against the storms of your own stupidity. And if you can, do it. Second, let the storms of life drive you closer to God. What some people do is the storms of life make them bitter against God. And it drives them away from trusting Him to trusting the government bailouts and, and get-rich-quick schemes and other bogus saviors that are out there. We can't do that. God only honors one thing, faith in Him. Hebrews 11:6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Third, don't be paralyzed into inaction. We've already talked about that a bit. Some people curl up into a ball and they hope the storm will go away. It won't. Take action or you will go down, whether you're a Paul or a, or a Phil. Storms know no favorites. Here's what Proverbs 24:16 says, and I put Philippians in your outline, but it's Proverbs. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. So he's not saying righteous men can't fall. He says they may fall seven times. But he's saying it doesn't matter how many times they fall down, they're going to get up. They're going to try again. They're not going to be paralyzed into an action. Fourth, don't see the symptoms as the problem. I see this all the time. You know, the welfare crowd. What do they see as the problems? They see, well, it's poverty. Well, there's so much crime in our neighborhood. It's my upbringing. Um, they see all kinds of things out there that are making their families fall apart. Those are symptoms. They are not the problems. The problem hit even before the storm hit, right? The problem was bad character, bad vision, bad worldview. All of the things that we've seen led to the bad decision. In fact, you know, when some people come for counseling, the only thing they want me to help them with is pain relief. They don't want to repent of all of the bad decisions that went into this storm. They want pain. Rescue me from the storm. And I tell them, hey, there's no point in even counseling you unless your desire to glorify God is much stronger than your desire to avoid this pain. Because I'll tell you something, the first two or three weeks is going to be even more painful, the, the remedies that I'm going to be giving to you. Our goal must be to deal to the heart of the issue and say, Lord, I don't want just a superficial band-aid. I want to be transformed from the inside out because God sometimes brings the pain. He sometimes brings the storms to wake us up to the problem. We've got heart issues that need to be dealt with. Fifth, don't neglect the body of believers. That ship would have gone down if every passenger had not pitched in with the work during the storm. Benjamin Franklin once told his comrades, we must hang together, gentlemen, else we shall most assuredly hang separately. You know, this is not a time for us to be grousing at each other, getting bitter with each other, tearing down each other. In these storms that we're going to be facing in America, this congregation has got to hang together. We've got to hang together. 
Sixth, don't be distracted by the most obvious choices given to you in life. Now, if this group had strategized together, okay, let's think outside of the box. How do we stay here in safe and fair havens and make the situation a little bit more comfortable? They could have come up maybe with all kinds of creative ideas, but what happens is alternatives we become blinded to when the experts give you only one solution. And so when you get into trouble brainstorm as a family and say, don't look at the obvious. Let's think no idea is a bad idea. There may be something that could get us skinning the cat in a biblical way and get us out of this trouble. Seven, don't overreact to time pressures and stress. We've talked about that. Eighth, don't desperately hold on to your lifestyle. I have several friends who have gone down because they were desperately holding on to their lifestyles. You know what? If there is anything in your life that you say, I can't give that up, then God's likely to bring along a, a storm just to take it away because he's in the idol-destroying business. We need to have the attitude of Job. The Lord is given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, everything I have belongs to you anyway. Help me to use it to your glory. Help me to relinquish it to your glory. We've got to have Stuart's heart. So don't desperately hold on to your lifestyle. It may be God's wanting you to downsize or do something else. Ninth, realize that all decisions reveal values. There are no secular decisions. Every decision we make either glorifies God or does not. That was true of this decision to go up the coast. It's true of financial decisions you make. Um, make your, sure your values are biblical. And then finally, learn from your failures. We're all going to make mistakes sometime because we're human, right? But if you learn from them, you will grow. NBA coach Rick Patino said, failure is good. It's fertilizer. Everything I've learned about coaching, I've learned from making mistakes. He's saying, don't worry about it. Get up and try again. Learn from those past mistakes. Now, that was maybe a little bit of an exaggeration. Everything I've learned was from mistakes. But the best leaders do indeed learn from their mistakes. Washington Irving said, Little minds are subdued by misfortunes, but great minds rise above them. So that's my last admonition to you. Let your minds be great by being determined to glorify God in how you respond to your past bad decisions as well as the storms that they are going to be producing. Amen. Father, thank You for Your Word. And it is our desire to walk in it to walk in it by the power of Your Holy Spirit. You are the God who has promised uh, to work in us both to will and to do of Your good pleasure. And Father, we know that we can only work out our salvation with fear and trembling as You work in us these things. And so we pray for Your presence in us and that You would enable us to have the kind of diligence that would get us through the storms of life. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.